We were speaking about Birkas Hamazan. We left off with one question which we'll get to. First, I'd like to reiterate certain points based on some of the things that we've learned and at other times, and I think that they're, that they're worth repeating. We mentioned We mentioned on occasion, and we talked about it last time, that the reason why Hashem commanded us, a mitzvah saseh, a mitzvah derisa, to bench, because we're saying that although all brachas, although all brachas are very important, but they're all rabbinically uh, enacted. Because I wasn't benching after grace after meals, that's a mitzvah saseh, mitzvah a positive command, mitzvah a positive command. So we questioned as to why that is so, and we furthermore questioned why is it after you eat rather than before you eat. We mentioned from Rabbi Shamash Nafal Hirsch, and I think that this is a very important point to reiterate, that he points out that the root of the word lechem is from the same root as milchama. Bread comes through struggle, milchama, war. It's man's war against the forces of nature, it's man's war to toil and to struggle to try to you know, extract his Parnassus from the earth and it's also man's war against his fellow man as well. The major strife, the major conflict that you find everywhere, whether it's between nation and nation or between friends or even in families, comes about when it comes to money, to Parnassus, that's the major cause of strife. The major cause of all problems is Lechem the people struggle for. Hashem tells us, you have to bench. Because not by bread alone does man live, but by the word of God. But it's more than that. Not through your struggling, and you think that your struggling is going to bring you the victory. That's not where it comes from. It comes from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. The same way that the mon comes from Hashem, and that's why Birkas HaMozan is placed in the same parasha where Hashem says, recall the man. Remember how Hashem fed you the man. Because where did your parnasa come from when you were in the dire straits? It came from Hashem. It came from the word of God. It was the mouth of Hashem that fed you, and your toil was nothing. You don't make it by the struggle. And recently, someone over here maybe could say the nice fish story that we have. It says in the Pasuk, Six days shall your work be done. The word is Teosem Melacha. Grace for the right. Teosem Melacha. A person has to view his Parnosa that it's done for him. It doesn't say Teosem Melacha that you should work. It says Teosem Melacha. The question that's asked is why mention the work? Why mention that people have to work for six days? You want to tell us the laws of Shabbos? Say, seventh day is the, is the day of rest. Why mention work for six days? There's no positive command to work for six days. The Teretz is, says Rabbi Shlomo Gansfried, that a person can only enjoy and appreciate Shabbos if he's aware that the Sheshes Yomim is Teyosem Lachem. That the six days the work is done for you. You think you're struggling, you think you're fighting, and you think you're the one that's extracting your panos, and you're not. The work is being done. Then you could sit back and relax. It's a day of rest. It's only a day of rest. It's only a day that could be enjoyed and appreciated 
if you realize that the six day work week is it's done for you and you're not the one that's doing it. It's teyosem loch. The remiss to this is that Jews eat fish on Shabbos. And he volunteers for the fish story. We know the fish story. Okay, I guess I'll say it. It used to be in the olden days that when people ate fish on Shabbos, unlike the way they eat fish on Shabbos nowadays, where you go to the store and you buy your roll of gefilte fish and you cook it up, people actually went down to the fish market and bought themselves a fish. They'd buy a beautiful large fish for Shabbos. When they cut open the fish, what do you expect to find inside of this big fish in the stomach? Little fish. Well, when you open up its stomach. Sometimes you found a pearl there, a diamond. You have all these stories about people opening up the stomachs of fish, Arab Shabbos, and it finds pearls and stuff like that. Generally speaking, they found little fish inside of the big fish. Well, if they open up the little fish, what do you find in their stomachs? Littler fish. That's the nature of fish. Fish swim after the fish. The bigger fish eat the smaller fish. The great big fish eat those fish. And then you have the big mammoth fish that eat even the larger fish. You'd expect when you open up the stomach and the stomach of the little one and the little one and the little one, you're going to find the fish very nicely lined up. Head, tail, head, tail, head, tail, like that, right? Well, why? No, why would you expect that? Because what happens is as the fish is swimming, the fish comes behind it and grabs it. So you swallow it up. Comes the fish behind it, swallows that. Comes the fish behind that, swallows even the larger fish. Until ultimately you have one fish swallowing all the way down, and it's lined up tail to tail, head to head, right? They discovered something else. They discovered when you open up the fish, the fish were lined up in the opposite direction. Why? They learned a lesson from this. Your work is done for you. You struggle and you swim and you go into the rat race and you're chasing after the fish. But that's the fish that gets away. The fish that finally comes to you is you open your mouth and it swims right in. Hashem brings the fish into your mouth. The fish that you finally get is not the fish that you're chasing after. That's the one that gets away. It's the fish that swims into you without any effort. Hashem is the one that provides the parnos, and that's the lesson to be learned. Let's go back on another lesson. It says in the Aseris Hadibris, question that's asked. The tenth commandment, does anybody know what it is? Mosachmol. Don't covet. Don't covet your neighbor's property. Don't covet your neighbor's wife or anything that your neighbor possesses. Don't covet. The question that's asked, I read there's two questions to be asked over here. One question is, how does a person control his emotion? Oh, Sachma, the Torah commands you, don't covet. How does a person control his feelings of, um, of chemda, of, of desire? We're talking about emotions, desire. Secondly, why place in the Aseris Adibris, with all the prominent commands, as we see, you know, Sadi Gon says, that all the Torah is contained in the 600, uh, all 613 commands can be derived from the Aseris Adibris. That seems to be the key to the whole Torah. As we mentioned, uh, we learned the other day in Yaakov, the Seder Halimud that a person is supposed to learn, the order of learning, first the Aseris Adibris, that the essential um, ideology of Judaism, and then you expand on that to the other commands. So why place such a seemingly minor kind of uh, navera in, in the Torah? Don't come for that, something in the heart. Do you get Malchus for such a thing? What would you say? No. Why not? You have to have an action. Have an action. Well, that's also true, but the, but the the fact is that something that's in the heart 
that contains no actions. The truth is, you, you have to have an action for Losach, but also we're not going to get into the halachic parts, but the Torah is essentially telling you something which deals with the heart, something that's seemingly minor and relatively insignificant in the, in the greater picture of things as to what Judaism is supposed to be. So why is it there? And how does one control it? First, let me say over to Ebenezer. Ebenezer says, the way a person controls his heart. By the way, where's the Chumash over here? Who was here? Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's good. Where's my glasses? <laughs> okay. We have that. It's good my head's under my head. Yeah. Need a vacation. So, the evidence says the way to control your emotions is by realizing that it's beyond your grasp. The same way that a person of low birth, a hick, a hillbilly, will never covet the princess, because he knows it has nothing to do with him. People tend to, to covet and to desire the things that are possible. Children, if you speak to them, they'd love to fly. Why? Because they watch Superman and they see birds. In their minds, why shouldn't I be able to fly? All of us like the fact that birds fly and we, we wish we could, but none of us really desire it because it's beyond the realm of possibility. People only desire the possible, not the impossible. A person of low birth does not desire to become king of England because he knows it's beyond his grasp, it's beyond his reach. You only desire what's, what you feel is attainable. Says the Evan Ezra, Lo Sachmod, you have to realize that the house of your fellow man is beyond your grasp. It's unattainable. It's like you being this person of low birth trying to reach for the stars and being a king. You know it's impossible. Feel that's what, that, that, that what's his is his, what's yours is yours. It's beyond your grasp. It's beyond your reach. It's unattainable. It's the impossible dream. People don't dream the impossible dream. That's the evidence it says. Comes the base Halevi. And he argues on the Evan Ezra. He says he doesn't understand the question. What do you mean how do you control your emotions? It says, Hashem wants his fear to be on your face in order that you, you should not sin. Says the Evan Ezra, rather the Beisalevi, the cure for desire and lust for sin is fear, fear of heaven. If a person desires to do something horrible, no matter how great his lust is, and he starts walking across thin ice, and it starts cracking, the panic sets in, and all your desire evaporates. All of your lust, all of your great plans, and everything that you've been trying to do, like, you can't think of anything else but the fact that you're on thin ice. Right? Therefore, says the Beis uh, Levi, if a person would have proper years Hashem, and he'd realize there's a fire, right? The famous story of the guy that he wants to do Naveh, all of a sudden he realizes there's a fire burning. Where's there a fire? The Talmudim come up. The fire is coming out of my heart. That's the fire. And a person would realize that the fire of lust is the same thing as a fire that's burning you. And what was his answer when they told him, Rebbe, how could you embarrass yourself? He said, better that I should be embarrassed in this world than that I should be embarrassed in the other world, in the world to come. What does that mean? That means basically that a person, if he could visualize and envision what does it mean to do an Avera, that it's a fire that will consume his soul. And he realized that the Eitzor is the fire in his heart, that in the next world will become all-encompassing and totally consume you, then it'll evaporate. The, the cure for desire and lust, the cure for the fear, rather for the fire of the heart, is the fire of Gehenna. 
realize in front of you that there's Gehenim, that there's fire, the fear of that fire will take away the fire of your heart, the lust, the passion that you may have. Very nice answer. That's the Beis chart. To this I'd like to come to the defense of the Evanesra. How? Rav Shavashin Hirsch says something like this, and, but so does Rav Moshe Feinstein. We all know that the next parasha starts off saying, Ve'ela ha-mishpotin. You know, let's skip the preliminaries and get straight to the actual essence of the word. Rav Moshe says like this, there are two types of desire that people have, two types of Yetzir horror. One is a Yetzir horror that's physical, sensual, animal. Animals have it, and we have it in common with the animals. That's one kind of Yetzir horror, lost desire. We all know what that is. Then there's another Yetzir horror, which is unique to human beings. Animals don't have that. Desire for money. Chemdas And that's an insatiable drive, an appetite, which of course teaches us that it's, that it's a human kind of drive. Because if it would be animalistic, you reach the point of overindulgence. Anything physical, you reach the point of satiation, and overeating and everything else, and then you just don't desire it anymore. Any physical desire. When it comes to the desire for someone else's money, or your money, or anything else to reach it, it's endless, it's insatiable. People just go on and on, never-ending. Says Rav Moshe, what is the difference ultimately between these two kinds of desire? The desire for the physical, for the animal, for the sensual, is one that doesn't directly affect your belief in Hashem. In other words, a person doesn't have air. It doesn't necessarily mean that by, by this aver, it diminishes his faith in Hashem. Why is that? Because we all know that you can have a doctor who will smoke cigarettes. He knows it's bad for him. There's no question in his mind that it's horrible and it's bad. He believes it with 100%. He can't help himself. People eat their own foods, right? Your doctor tells you high cholesterol, whatever it is. You know what you're not supposed to eat? Eat it anyway. You don't believe the doctor? You don't believe these things? Of course you believe it. You believe it wholeheartedly. But you have an animal instinct, an animal desire, which is hard to rein in. In other words, the Yetzir horror for physical, for desire, does not necessarily impede or detract from a person's faith in Hashem, from his bitachim. Desire for money, desire for someone else's money, not caring about someone else's money, directly affects a person's faith structure in Hashem. Why? Because if a person would fully believe that Hashem is the provider and He provides you with what you should have and He provides them with what they should have, you would not desire and covet someone else's property. You wouldn't feel it. It's a, it shows a lack of comfort in how Hashem runs the world. You're sort of feeling like it's unfair, life is unfair. And therefore you want to reach out and try to equalize things. We're, we're not talking about people earning an honest living now. We're talking about people trying to do dishonest things in order to uh, increase their wealth. Great wealth. Because they, they covet someone else's property. What they're in effect saying is be, besides the animal desire, there's a lack of firm commitment to the fact that Hashem is running the world properly. When a person does something permissible, he's in effect saying that Hashem placed me on the world and He expects me to do something so I have to go through the motions. Remember we talked about last week. We said, A person's parnosa is as difficult as the splitting of the sea. So we asked the question, what does it mean that it's as difficult? One could say that the miracle of parnosa is as great 
as the miracle of splitting of the sea. Splitting of the sea was a tremendous miracle. Well, let's say that this is as great a miracle. Whatever the reason is. But what does it mean, caution? It's as difficult. God has difficulty? Did he have difficulty splitting the sea? To God, there's no difficulty in splitting of the sea. There's no difficulty in Parnosa. So what then is the word caution, the difficulty? <coughs> the difficulty is to man. The same way that Kriyas Yamsuf came about with a tremendous leap of faith, literally. We had to jump into the ocean. Although you, it's like jumping out of a plane without a parachute. You have to feel that whatever Hashem <coughs> is doing, He's going to take care of you. It's a, it's a hard thing. Jump out of a plane without a parachute. That's what Nachshim ben Aminadav did. Likewise, when you do the Yerpanos, you're going through the motions, and you're jumping out of the plane, and Hashem is the one that's providing you. It's a very difficult integration in a person's mind to realize my action has to combine with Hashem. But it's a doable thing. It means that you are doing what Hashem expects out of you. Yes, Lechem is a struggle. It's a Muhammad, But it's a struggle that Hashem expects of us. On the other hand, when a person reaches out for things that you're not supposed to take, then it shows that you are not fully cognizant and you don't fully believe in providence. If you believe in divine providence, you would not reach out for what doesn't belong to you. You wouldn't even desire what doesn't belong to you. The point I'm making is this. The base Halevi's antidote for sin is only in the area of lust and desire of physical animal Yetzirah. There one could say the antidote for lust is fear. When a person trips on the ice, all the desire vanishes. It evaporates. All of your Yetzirah, your desire, your lust, just like floats right out because panic replaces it. But if a person is crossing the thing because he wants someone else's money and he wants to steal something, he may slip. And by slipping on the thin ice, he's going to feel that all of a sudden that, you know, you lose your feelings of trying to get there. But his root cause of unfairness, his feeling that Hashem doesn't, isn't providing for me and I've got to reach out on my own, is still there. It's still there. Therefore, the Beis answer is the incorrect answer for Los Sachmod. Because Los Sachmod, and this explains, and the Rosh Hashanah and Rosh both say this, Los Sachmod is in the Aser Sadibris, because it's the seal of the entire Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments starts belief in Hashem, and it works its way around to Ben Odom Lamakam, between man and God, and then it works its way to Ben Odom Lechavero, how to deal with other people, and then it seals it by the end, makes full circle. Losachmod makes full circle to Anochi Hashem. Anochi Hashem says, believe that I exist and I interfered and took you out of Egypt. I miraculously took you out of Egypt. Therefore, Losachmod, you have no reason to, to want to covet someone else's property because you have to have faith that I provide for you. The same way that I interfered in nature with the Yitzhiya Mitzrayim, with the exodus of Egypt. The same way that I split the sea, I provide you with Parnassah. Koshin Mizaynaisa Shalom Kikriyas Yamsuf is really the tail end of Los Sachmod joining full circle with Anochi Hashem. We want to mention this another time. And since it's Pesach, it's an appropriate thing to also mention. Anochi Hashem Hashem says, I am the Lord your God who took you out of Egypt. Why doesn't Hashem start off saying, I am the Lord your God who created heaven and earth? Why talk about the Exodus from Egypt? So we brought down from the Rosh, the Orchaz Chaim, the Rosh, that says that although a guy can just say, I believe in God, and he's no longer an atheist, if a Jew says, I believe in God, but I don't believe in the Exodus, he's still called an atheist. Whoever doesn't believe in that, 
it's as if he doesn't believe in the Nochi Hashem. So we explain why. Because the Jewish concept of faith in Hashem is not merely that God exists and he doesn't, and he doesn't deal with the world as providence, that there's no providence. Jewish concept of faith in Hashem, of belief in Hashem, means that Hashem is not only the creator, but the maintainer, the sustainer, the provider. That's what the Jewish concept of belief in God means. If you don't believe in Hashem's interference with nature, then you're denying God's existence in the Jewish concept of belief. Therefore, Mosachmod is the direct outcome of that. You have no reason to covet, because what Hashem provides for you is for you, what's for them is for them. That's why the Eben Ezra's approach is the correct one. You have to feel that it's the impossible. It's the unattainable. What someone else's you have no right to touch because Hashem wanted it for them, not for you. And a person that desires someone else's money, a person that covets money and wants more and more, shows a lack of faith in Hashem. It's not merely a desire. It's not the same thing as a Yetzirah for animal things. It's deeper than that. It's worse than that. Because it means that your belief in Hashgachas Hashem is deficient. And you have many people, as great as they can be, but you have to work on your faith in Hashem. You could keep all the Torah and all the mitzvahs, but when it comes to monetary things, therefore Rashi says, These are the mishpotim, the monetary matters. Says Rashi, the same way that the Aseris Adibras were from Sinai, these are also from Sinai. This is the essence of Judaism. The essential characteristics of Judaism is that Hashem is the provider you have no reason to covet. Yes. But, but yeah, but it all has to do because Ashel Reyecha. It ends off saying that it's the Shor Vachamor Vachol Ashel Reyecha. Here we're dealing with the woman not in terms of sensual pleasure, but in the fact that it's not yours. You have no right to have to her. She's someone else's. It goes together with Avdo, Amoso, Shor Vachamoro. Whether. Thank you. <laughs> okay. But, but that, that's really the framework. So Losachmod is there to teach us this lesson. And therefore it belongs in the Ten Commandments. We asked earlier, you're legislating emotion, you're talking about something which is insignificant. No, it's extremely significant. Because it's the seal of the entire Ten Commandments. It's the seal of what does it mean to believe in Hashem to the point of Hashgoch Hashem. You have to realize that the fish you catch is not the fish that you're chasing. It's the fish that Hashem is providing you for. You're just going through the motions. Therefore, Man does not live by bread alone. Man does not live by struggle alone. He doesn't live as a result of his milchama. It's not your milchama, it's not your doing that causes it. But but what Hashem provides us for. Therefore, says Rosh Hashanah Hirsh, we find by benching the concept of birchas azimun, where people join together as mezumen. Because when people realize that Hashem provides me, Hashem provides you, and your prosperity is yours and mine is mine, and never the twain shall meet, then we can join together in brotherhood and friendship and camaraderie and bless Hashem together. Then we could unite. Because in all sachmod, the purpose of teaching us birkas azimun is to tell us that a person should not covet someone else's. I could be your friend, and we could bless Hashem together for our parnasah. There is no reason to have strife and struggle. Wherever there is conflict, strife and struggle, it means people lack faith in Hashem. So it's a tremendous lesson. You could be religious, you could be from. The cause of all conflict is lechem. The cause of conflict in nations, among friends, among family. But what's the root of it? The root of it is milchama. You want to get. You're milchama. You want to do it all. But you have to remember, it's not your struggle. It's Hashem that provides. If you believe in Hashem, there is no cause for conflict.
and this would be the cure then for all for all wars if people would have the faith in Hashgachas Hashem in divine providence. Let me, let me mention an, another aspect of something in terms of how you view things. What tends to happen is a great man once said that man was created with two eyes, a strong eye and a weak eye. The strong eye is to be used for introspection, to look very, very carefully and scrutinize yourself and find the littlest, tiniest faults. The weak dim eye is the one you're supposed to use to look at everybody else and say, I can't see, I don't see, you know, I don't see so clearly. Unfortunately, most people have reversed it. They use the weak eye on themselves for introspection. I don't know, I'm okay. The strong eye, they scrutinize, that's why this is happening to you, and that's why that's happening to you. And they scrutinize the person, they, like a microscope and a telescope, they zero in on all the other person's faults. We have to reverse the eyes in the right direction. Another thing that we have to further point out Another aspect of Birchas HaMozim is the fact that Birchas HaMozim is really a spiritual prayer. When you go through it, you see how it talks about the whole history of the Jewish people and what Hashem does. And it's a way of trying to focus a person's attention on where he's heading and what he's supposed to do. Again, Rav Shalom says the reason why we bench after we eat is because now that we've eaten, we have to re-energize ourselves and realize what it's for. You've eaten, you know, in Japan, how after you finish eating, with mark of respect by burping, right? You belch, like an animal. The point is you walk away and you show mark of respect by doing an animal act. Jewish people, what do they do when they finish eating? They belch. They But they say, excuse me. Because that's the animal part. What we now do is we refocus our energies and our efforts on Avodah Hashem. As the Rambam said in Hilchas Deus, that if a person eats with the right intentions, if he drinks with the right intentions, if he does all these things, then even his eating and drinking is a mitzvah. Not only is his davening a mitzvah, not only is his mitzvah a mitzvah, not only is his learning, but even the sleeping, the vacations, the eating, it's all a mitzvah. Birkas HaMosin is able to shift our focus from the animal to the reinvigorating aspect of, of doing Avodah Hashem, of why we're here. We once mentioned, let me illustrate it with a story, this, this, this point I'm about to say. There was a great man, from the greatest of the Hasidic masters, Rav Aaron Karliner. He lived a couple hundred years ago. He was the beginning of the Karlin Stolen dynasty. Many of his, his uh, Zmiras are printed in, in our Zmiras books, which to join to the club of comp composition of Zmiras, you have to be someone great. I mean, he was, he, all the Zemiris are very inspiring about thanking Hashem and viewing life and how he greatly desired just to be able to be close to Hashem. Very spiritual. One day he had a, he had a Talmud. His Talmud came to Matsoi Shabbos to visit the Rebbe. And, um, and he's sitting over there at the table. His Gabbai comes in and he brings him a bowl of fruit. So he takes out an apple and a knife. 
And he makes a bracha. You know, you can imagine how a Rebbe makes a bracha with fervor and kavona, and you know, like you know, you could see the malachim dancing around. Cuts off the slice, puts it in his mouth, chews it, eats it up, swallows, cuts off another slice, and starts eating another slice. And slowly but surely, he's eating away at the apple. His his disciple stands there watching him, and he starts thinking to himself, you know what? The Rebbe, yes, he's a holy man, and his bracha is more than my bracha, but ultimately there's not that much difference between me and him. He always thought of his rep as being an angel. He's like a Malach Hashem. But what's the difference really? He makes a bracha, I make a bracha. He eats an apple, I eat an apple. Yeah, we both burp, right? And ultimately we're the same. What is the difference between him and me? Why is he so angelic? The Rebbe saw all of a sudden that, that the demeanor of his Talmud changed from one of, you know, awe and reverence to one of critical appraisal. He chapped what's going on. So he says, Rabbi Yankel, Rabbi Yitzchak, what's the difference between you and me? You eat an apple, I eat an apple, you make a bracha, I make a bracha. What's really the difference? So he says, you know, Rabbi, I was thinking about the same thing really. I had the same question. He says, I'll tell you the difference. When I wake up in the morning and I look out in the garden, I look at the sun, the moon, and, and I look all around me, I think to myself, what a wonderful, beautiful, gorgeous world that Hashem is providing me with. And look at everything, and, and I'm like so overwhelmed with the feeling and the desire. I want to bless Hashem. I want to make a bracha. I'd love to make a bracha. But I know that you're not going to make a bracha in vain. A person is not allowed to make a bracha in vain. I therefore reach for an apple in order that I can make a bracha and thank Hashem for His world. When you wake up in the morning, what do you think? Oh, I'm tired. Oh, I'm hungry. I haven't eaten since last night. Boy, am I hungry. i got to get hold of an apple. You grab the first apple, but you know you have to make a bracha before you eat the apple. So you make a bracha and eat the apple. You make a bracha to eat an apple. I eat an apple to make a bracha. It's how you view life. It's how you shift the focus of, of what a person is supposed to do. We once learned in the, the Ein Yaakov. Ein Yaakov says a beautiful pshat. It says, for all those of you remember, the Ashrei. A person that says Ashrei is a Ben Olam Habo. So the Yaakov says a very beautiful pshat. Why is, are you a Ben Olam Habo for saying Ashrei? After all, does anybody remember this pshat? Well, okay, well, there was six pshat. Yeah. Six pshat. Well, Yaakov asked the following question. He says, obviously we're not saying that Ashrei is going to replace Shimon Ashrei. So we're talking about Ashrei in supplementing, in addition to Shimon Ashrei. What's so great about Ashrei over Shimon Ashrei? I mean, Shimon Ashrei is the highest prayer. So why could Ashrei get you to Olam Habo when Shimon Ashrei can't? Says the Ein Yaakov, when a, what is Shimon Ashrei? It's what we call Tefillah. What is Tefillah? As we talked about last time. It's asking Hashem for your requests. That's what Tefillah is all about. It's brachas where you say, Hashem, I want this, I want that. And this is just praise of Hashem. Now he says there are two kinds of individuals in the world. Remember the example we gave. If a, imagine a person goes in, he's walking down the street, and he, uh, he's very thirsty. So he says, you know, I need a can of soda. So he walks by 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, and he knocks on the door over there, a nice white house over there, and he knocks on the door, and he says, excuse me, I'm thirsty, can I have a drink? And this gentleman comes to the door, and he says, sure, come on in, and he gives him a can of soda, and he invites him into an office that's very oval-shaped and everything, talks to him for a few minutes. Then he says, here, have a drink. He comes out, and the guy says, do you know where you just were? 
you know, in this white house over here, and I went to this old walk, this guy gave me a drink of water. He said, you know who you just spoke to? The President of the United States? He said, yeah, he gave me a can of soda. Said, I have a can of soda. I'm, I was able to satisfy my thirst. He says, no, but you spoke to the President. To some people, it's the apple. To other people, it's the communication with Hashem. To some people, you walk out of that meeting with George Bush and you say, oh, what do I have? He gave me a can of soda. To other people, no. That's incidental. Is the fact that I have an audience with the President of the United States. Everybody knows that the way you get your parnos is by asking Hashem. To some people, it's incidental that you speak to Hashem because your focus is on your parnosa, on the things that you need. You know that you got to go by way of Hashem to get there. To other people, it's just the opposite. I need Hashem. I want to speak to Hashem. I want to communicate and commune with, with Hashem. I'm, communi I'm communing with Him by way of making my requests. But the main thrust, the main focus of my life is the relationship that I develop with Hashem. That's what we talk about, relationship. In a sense, one could say the same thing with Birkas HaMazim. It's a way of telling you that what you're doing is, you know, you've eaten. Now talk spirituality with Hashem. Refocus your life now that you're satisfied and you don't have requests to make. The question was, why don't you sit bench before you eat? Before you eat, you're hungry, you're, it's, ah, I want the food. Now that you're satiated, it's like the last part of the Seder, after you've already eaten. Now already for a person to go through and say, you know what, I mean, listen, everybody feels this. You finish eating, you go to the restaurant, and you spend three hours there, and you've eaten your fill and everything else. Now you're full. Oh, we got a bench. You know, forgot the bench. Okay, uh, right? What does that mean? What that means is that, yeah, I got a bench, but the main focus was the meal. You bench after you eat to shift the focus as to why you're doing it. What you're in effect trying to do is, you're trying to get, you're eating the apple to make the bracha. You're not making a bracha just to eat the apple. Well, just, if you, if you want to be practical, okay, you're right. Yeah. If you want to be so practical, let me be a little bit more practical. If a person is hungry, there is just no way in the world he's going to be able to go through a whole beer because before he eats. You try that sometime. People don't even have the patience to wash their hands and make hamotzi. That's why you have all these mazonas rolls, right? But there's no question that it's going to be harder getting people to bench before than after, if that's the case. But it's a way of, of teaching us the lesson to refocus our lives into the spiritual quest rather than into the, merely into the physical satiation. You know, we're talking about this apple. There's a very similar mice, and I guess in a way it's, it, it's a uh, counterbalance, the difference between the Hasidic world and maybe the Misnagdisha world. But it also has a very similar lesson, but in a, you know, in a certain way people ask, what is the difference between a giant from the Misnagdisha world or from the Hasidic world? Briskarov had a similar story with an apple. His story goes a little differently. He used to vacation sometimes in Switzerland. So once he was in... Um, he was in Switzerland, and he was uh, staying in the house of someone on Shabbos. Wolf Rosengarten. He was staying in his house on Shabbos. So they're sitting around the table talking. It was in the afternoon. And he asks him, he says, Wolf, could you do me a favor? Could you bring me an apple and a banana? I'd like an apple and a banana. The Rebbe requests it. He got it. He goes in, no questions asked. He brings him the apple and the banana. So he puts it down on the table. He never bothers picking it up or anything. just sits there. They're sitting around, talking, schmoozing, whatever. And he's wondering, like, how come he's not eating it? Okay, they're lost in talking, uh, learning, whatever. 
it's time for Mincha. They go to Shul to Daven Mincha. Then they come back and they sit down at the table again. And the apple and the banana are still there. So he says, uh, Rebbe, I mean, uh, do you still want the apple and the banana? So he says, no, no, I, I don't want it anymore. So he sees that he's a little puzzled. So he says, I'll tell you. He says, there's a mitzvah, there's a command, the Gemara brings down that a Jew is supposed to make a hundred brachas every single day. If you work it out, you'll see that we, we make a hundred brachas a day. Shabbos is a little bit of a problem. Shmon Esrei is smaller, so as a result of that, you have to make up more brachas. You know, Shmon Esrei has 19 blessings the rest of the time, three times a day. So 19 times three, you already have a lot. On Shabbos, you only have seven, so you have less blessings. So he said, today, my cheshbon is I'm only going to make 98 blessings. I want to make two more blessings. I ask you for a banana, for Bore Priyadama, and for an apple, which is a Bore Priyadama, in order to get my quarter of 100. I went to shul, they gave me an aliyah. So I made a bracha before, and I made a bracha after my aliyah. So I already have my hundreds, so I no longer need the apple and the banana. In, in point of fact, the two stories display a very similar kind of an approach, where we utilize our physical and we utilize our functions to make the bracha. But one is a Hasidic perspective on it, and one is a Litvish and Misnagdish perspective, but they're really both heading in the same direction. But in a sense, that's really what Birkas Amazon is trying to, try to do, is to try to somehow spiritualize our lives after eating. At this point already, I think we should now go to the question that we left off with last time. We left off with the following question. We said that Moshe Rabbeinu was the one that composed the first bracha in Birkas Amazon. The one talking about the man. We then said that Yoshua was the one that did the second bracha. We also said that the uh, last bracha was made by, by Shlomo Melech and David, and then there was a final bracha that was added later on. Now we could get to what, we, what we're trying to get at, the next part. We left off with the following question. The last bracha in Birkas Hamazen is the bracha that we said was said over the burial of the Jews of Betar. When the Jews were massacred at Betar, and over 500,000 Jews were killed in the revolt of Bar Kokhba, 50 years after the destruction of the Temple, Hashem performed a miracle because the Emperor, Hadrian, didn't allow the Jews to bury their dead. He wanted the, the bodies to rot away as a lesson for future revolts, to scare people away. So for seven years, permission wasn't granted to bury the Jewish bodies. Hashem provided a miracle, two miracles really. One, that the bodies didn't decompose. And after seven years, a new king arose and he gave him permission to uh, bury the dead. The question, of course, is what does it have to do with benching? Why make a bracha to thank Hashem for the lack of decomposition of the bodies and the burial of the dead? Why thank Hashem for such a thing? Especially after such a massacre. One answer that's given, and Rav Shamshun Hirsch says this, as well as others, it's to teach us a lesson that once we're in Gauls, revolts and the might of arms and power and war is not the way to our final salvation. Almost like the Satmarshita, in a sense. But Rav Shamshun Hirsch said this 100 years ago. It's to teach us that from the time that the Jewish people lost Yerushalayim, which was the bracha right before that, they placed it right after the bracha of Yerushalayim, 
rebuild Yerushalayim, rebuild the Temple. So right away we have this brach that tells us that from the time of the destruction of the Temple, the crown of Israel has been thrust into the, into the earth, and until Mashiach comes, we can't rely by the might of our own arms that we're going to get back to what we were. Bar Kochba's revolt was a terrible disaster. They lost. And it's an abject lesson for all eternity that now that we're in Golis, we have to wait till Hashem is going to do it. And don't think that by might of your arms, you're going to get there. That's one approach that's given. It still doesn't fully answer the question as to why place it in benching. Another point, perhaps, that we have to be aware of, and maybe that's why they placed it in benching, is it shows, it goes through the whole cycle of the history of the Jewish people from the time when we were at our peak, at our pinnacle in the desert, being fed by Mon, to the kindnesses that Hashem shows us even in the face of disaster. To be able to extract the lesson of what's good, what Hashem does for us, even in the face of this overwhelming calamity when, when the earth seemed the darkest. The disaster of Bar Kokhba parallels the Holocaust. And it, and, and it traumatized the Jewish people. And it affected them greatly. But even in the midst of that disaster, a person should show gratitude to Hashem for the small kindnesses. Now, someone asked last week, why is it that we bench after we eat a certain amount? Don't you have to really be full? Doesn't the person have to eat to the point of satiation? If we're thanking Hashem, we should thank Him only when we're satiated. So I mentioned then that yes, the mitzvah midaraisa is rochal to the savotu veirachli. Thank Hashem when you are satiated. Let's take a look at a very interesting medrash. The medrash is on the top left, on the left. It's a medrash in Tanchuma, and it's also a Gemara Brochus, in Davchof. Same Gemara, but the Medrash elaborates it slightly better. We say in Birkas HaKohanim, the Kohanim blessed the Jewish people, Yisra Hashem Ponov Eilecho V'yoseim Luchos Shalom. Yisra Hashem Ponov, what does that mean? Hashem should show favor to you. Yisra Hashem Ponov, but Hashem show His face to you, to show favor. So the Gemara, as well as the Medrash, asks the following: Yisro Hashem Ponov, the Chia Kodesh Baruch Hu knows Ponov. The Gemara Brachas says the Malachim asks this question: Does Hashem show favoritism? Doesn't it say in the Torah that Hashem show, that a person is that Hashem does not show favoritism to anyone, and he doesn't take bribery? It's, it's a pasuk. It says Lo Yisro Ponov, Asher Lo Yisro Ponov Lo Yikach Shochad. Hashem shows no favoritism to one person or the other. He treats everybody equitably, and he doesn't take bribery. So how could it say, Yisra Hashem Pono Ve'lechon? Omar HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Hashem answers the Malachim as follows. Kishem Shehem Nosen Liponen, the same way that the Jews act to me in this manner, Afani Nosen Lehem Ponen, I will act to them in the same manner and show favoritism. Ketzad. How is that? Kosavti B'Torosi V'Ochalto B'Sovoto Ve'Rachto. I wrote in my Torah, eat, be satisfied, and bench. A man will sit at a table with his family, and there isn't enough to provide for everybody. There's not enough to satisfy them all. But they'll still show me favoritism. 
umvorchen and they'll make a bracha v'dikta kualatzman and they'll go be punctilious in halacha she'yivorchu al kezayis v'al kebeya they'll bench even after eating a kezayis or a kebeya l'fikoch yis Hashem pono b'lechom what is this medrash telling us? the medrash is telling us a plea bigger thing the root cause of why Hashem what does it mean Hashem shows favoritism? The guy will always say, you Jews think you're chosen. And we, to ourselves at least, answer, yes, we, we are chosen. Is it fair to be chosen? Well, we do mitzvahs. But what exactly is the basis of this chosenness and this favoritism that Hashem shows to Jewish people that nobody else has? There's a Gemara in Baba Basra that says that when a guy gives tzedakah, the chesed lumim chatos, it's a sin. Goyim gives tzedakah, it's sinful. Jews give tzedakah, that's wonderful. If a, even if they give it conditionally. If a Jew gives tzedakah, I'm giving this tzedakah in order that my son should live. Rahman people have sick kids, and they give tzedakah, or the sick parents, and they give tzedakah so that their parents should live. The Gemara says that's called a tzedakah, that's good. If a guy gives it, it's called sinful. The Gemara says why? The Gemara says because deep down, when the guy gives tzedakah, conditional that his parents or his son should live and the kid dies they walk away saying I shouldn't have given that tzedakah they regret what they gave a Jew although he's saying yes Hashem please grant me this but ultimately the Jew shows hakor satov and gratitude to Hashem for the smallest thing because he says whatever Hashem does is for the best he gives tzedakah conditional but he knows deep down that even if it doesn't work Hashem, you know what's good. I gave the tzedakah wholeheartedly. Keep it. A Jew gives Hashem the benefit of the doubt. He believes, whatever Hashem does is for the best. Hashem gives you a little bit, you'll make a bracha. Hashem says in his Torah, you only have to bench if you feel satisfied, satiated. But the Jew says, no. Hashem provided me with a little, I'll be satisfied with this. Says Hashem, to a nation like that, shouldn't I show favoritism? I tell them in my Torah, that eat, be satisfied, then bless me. And here I'm providing them with so little. Only a kezayis. One slice of bread. You bench on a slice of bread, right? You bench on a slice of bread. Two slices of bread, whatever the case may be. You already bench. Is a person satisfied with that? There's no stuff in the middle, right? You don't have the sandwich. Nevertheless, you, you bless Hashem. What is that saying? What that's saying is that even though you're not satisfied, you're still willing to say to Hashem, thank you for what you provided. And people could be sitting around and the kids are crying. They didn't eat enough. They're still hungry. You had a kazais. Let's bench. Beyond, above and beyond the call of duty of what Hashem demands from us. Hashem never demanded that. Since the Jews show that, therefore we are worthy of the favoritism that Hashem shows to the Jewish people that He doesn't show to anybody else. Because instead of complaining, we bless. Just the opposite. Goyim complain. Or would complain. We not only don't complain, but we bless Hashem for what He does, and we and we thank Him for His bounty. Therefore, midah keneged midah, measure for measure. If we act to Hashem in that manner, Hashem gives us the benefit of the doubt and goes beyond the call of duty in our case. It's an important lesson, because it comes out that it's almost like saying that the whole chosenness of the Jewish people is hinged on this recognition on recognition of Hashem's bounty to thank Him for even the little things. That's the Jewish approach. The Jewish approach is to always look for the good, not for the evil. 
to look at the glasses being half full and saying, I thank you for what I have, rather than to say, I have half empty. I once said this story, but it's worth repeating again. It's brought down in Simon Wiesenthal's book, The Murderers Among Us. Some of you may recall it, or some of you may have uh, read it. Simon Wiesenthal was in a concentration camp in, in, I think, 1944-45, in the last period of the concentration camps before liberation, he was there. And he was liberated together with everybody else. And Reblazer Silver, who was then the chief rabbi of the United States of America and Canada, went to visit the DP camps. And he was, you know, an older man already, about 75 years old, but sharp like a tack. And he had, you know, he used to wear his top hat and everything. And he was a brilliant person. I mean, the Blazer Silver was, was unquestionably brilliant. I go into a lot of side stories about that, but they're of a more humorous nature. He was a brilliant person. And he'd go and he'd try to, and, and he did a tremendous amount of hot solo work during World War II as well as afterwards. He went to visit the DP camps, and he went around to try to encourage the people and the Jewish people there, and he'd go around saying schmoozing to, to try, you know, bringing a little life into these, you know, depressed and broken people. And he'd encourage them to go daven and to go to shul. And someone told him that this fellow, this Simon Wiesenthal, doesn't, doesn't attend shul. He doesn't like to come daven. So he calls him over to the side, and he puts his arm around him, and he says, Shimon, I hear you don't daven. I hear you don't want to come to shul. Why? I hear you're angry at God. So he says, no, I'm not angry at God. I'm angry at one of God's servants. He says, what? He says, I'll tell you something that I uh, witnessed. And that greatly troubled me. In the concentration camps, we know that Sidurim and any religious books were forbidden. A Jew smuggled in a Siddur. At peril of his life, he smuggled in a, a, a Siddur which was life-threatening. I greatly admired him. I said, what a wonderful thing that a person should smuggle in a Siddur in face of certain death if he's caught. So I was, I was greatly uplifted by that and elevated. Then all of a sudden I saw that he was going around selling 15 minutes of use of the sitter for a quarter of a person's rations of food that day. You know how meager the rations were. You had everybody there was emaciated, right? 80 pounds is what people came out there. They were lucky. My mother told me she was from the fatter ones and she was, I think, like 80 pounds. People came out skin and bones. So this guy's going around and he's selling a quarter of your daily rations for a chance at 15 minutes at the sitter. And the guy was raking in a business on that. He was getting food rations galore. When I saw that, it troubled me and depressed me so much that I couldn't go down anymore. A week later, the person that was doing it died because he was, he was making so much on the soup that his body, his shriveled body, just wasn't able to, to stand. His system was not able to take in all that soup that he was taking. I mean, he was stuffing himself. We know that when they liberated the camps, they had to slowly but surely... Right. right. When the Americans, they thought they were going to do them favors and they gave them chocolate bars and this, many people died from that. Their systems couldn't handle it. This person died as a result. So, um, so he told the story over. He said, that's what bothers me. So later Silver turns to me and he says, Du dummer, du mia, you dummy. Well, that's what you looked at. You looked at the fact that the guy was selling 15 minutes for a quarter of a day's rations? What about all those people that, that gave? Why look at the person that's taking? Look at all those Jews that lined up, emaciated as they were, 
giving away a quarter of their rations for a chance to daven for 15 minutes. Look at all those Jews that were doing that. And then on he went to davening, and he said, I learned a tremendous lesson from Laser Silver. He says, I learned that we have to view everything with two sides. There's two sides to every coin. There's a good and there's a bad. We don't know what's good for us and what's bad for us. And you have to view things. There's another side. Rebukhan Wasserman. We all know, we've heard of Rebukhan Wasserman. I mean, Rebukhan Wasserman was a Russian Shivan Branovich. He died during the Holocaust in 1941. He was in America in 1939, and people told him, don't go back because war is about to break out. So he said, I have 400 Talmudim waiting for me. How could I leave them? I have to go back to my Talmudim. And he was, he died on Kiddush Hashem. And how he died? He once went, he went to America to raise money. He used to go throughout Europe to raise money for his yeshiva. In 1937, he was in, uh, in Manchester. Manchester had a yeshiva of its own. And there was a certain person over there um, who used to, he was a Baal boss, but he raised a tremendous amount of money in the yeshiva and he worked in the, and he worked in the office. A person by the name of Shaul Rosenberg. He used to work in the yeshiva office and raise money and everything else. All of a sudden, and he was a wealthy person. His financial empire collapsed. He became poor, broken, he didn't have Parnassa, and he became totally, um, totally without a Parnassa. And as a result, it affected his his running of the yeshiva office, it affected his uh, going out and helping the yeshiva. Rebbe Chon Wasserman was there, so he asked the Gabbai, grant me an audience with Rebbe Chon, because I'd like to have a bracha from him. I want a bracha from Rebbe Chon Wasserman. What did he do? He went out and he bought himself a lottery ticket, where he could win 50,000 pounds. And, you know, chances of winning are, are quite slim. But he figured, let me get a bracha from Rebbe Chon Wasserman, and this way I'll win the, the lottery and my parnos will be back on track. So he explains to the Gabbai, he tells him, listen, you know, get, grant me an audience. I need, you know, the Parnosa in order because otherwise, this so I'll be able to help the Yeshiva again. I'll be able to be back, back in the flow of things, back in the thick of things to help the Yeshiva. So the Gabbai explains it over to Rebbe He grants him the audience. He comes in, Rebbe, give me a bracha. So Rebbe says, yeah, I heard. So he takes his hand, says, give me your hand. And he grabs his hand, and he clasps it, and he says, I give you a bracha that because of what you did for Kali Yisrael, what you did for the Yeshiva, and what you've done for Torah, you should have Gizot. He says, Rebbe, that's a very nice bracha, but I don't think you heard exactly my situation. Health. Good health. Health is wonderful, but that's not what I'm here for. So he says, Rebbe, let me just explain to you the situation again. I had a lot of money. I lost it all. I bought this lottery ticket. I could use a bracha to regain my financial security. And this way I could go back and help Klai and help the Yeshiva and help Tyron and build, build the Gvalti. So Chonan said, Ah, give me your hand. Give me your bracha. He takes his hand and he says, Give the bracha. You should have gizot. <laughs> he figured, Rabbi Chonan finally heard the story. So, uh, you know, obviously he had something in mind. What am I supposed to say? So, he left. He goes down the street. A week later, he's walking down the street and he falls to the ground, paralyzed with a stroke. They take him to the hospital. The man is in a coma, completely in a coma, doesn't respond to anything. The doctors say, within hours, the man's going to be dead. The family gathers around. They're waiting for the end. The end doesn't come. A week goes by, two weeks go by, three weeks go by. All of a sudden, he opens his eyes. Hello, family's there. He has a full recovery. 
when he opens his eyes, the doctor claps his hands and says, my God, I never saw this. It's only one chance in 10,000 that such a thing should happen. He walks away, he says, I realize that I won a lottery. I won a lottery of life, not a lottery of money. One chance in 10,000, he got it. We don't know what's good for us. The Jew thanks Hashem for everything. And it's more than the fact that the Jew just thanks Hashem for everything. It shows a sense of optimism that only Jewish people have. And that's why Hashem shows us favoritism. It tells you you had the greatest calamity. Thank Hashem that He's allowing you to bury the dead. Thank Hashem that he, that the bodies didn't decompose. Let's ignore the fact that we lost 500,000. That was our mistake. Terrible calamity. But let's extract the good out of the bad. Probably the person that represents this, this perennial optimism, at least the way I see it, is Dovr HaMelech. Dovr HaMelech, if you go through Dovr HaMelech's life history, you see to what extent he suffered and how he was able to extract the good out of the bad. At every stage of his life, many of you may know the famous story of the spider, where Dovr HaMelech talks to Hashem and says, Hashem, I understand the purpose of every creature that you've made. What I can't understand is why you made a spider. I mean, it's, why did you make a spider? Obviously, he didn't have cockroaches where he was, otherwise he wouldn't have asked about the spider. <laughs> so Hashem says, you'll see. One day, Dovr Melch, escaping from Shaul, Shaul was pursuing him, trying to kill him, runs into a cave, and he hides in the cave, and Shaul's men are looking after him. Hashem causes a spider to make this great big cobweb at the entrance of the cave. Shaul and Melch's people come over there and say, oh, let's search the cave. All of a sudden, they start walking in the cobwebs. There's no way he's in here. And they also don't feel like searching through all the cobwebs either. So they leave him alone. It saved his life. He says, Hashem, I now understand why you made a spider. But there's another more Peladig Gemara. We dive in it every day on Shabbos. Le David Bishanoso as Tamol of Neavimelech Vayegorsheyu Vayelach. We say that every Shabbos. It's a capital that goes as follows. Le David, this is a composition that he made when he was hiding out among the Philistines and he changed himself to act crazy. And he says, What's the story? He says, I will thank Hashem at all times. At all times is his praise in my mouth. What happened over there? One of the times that David was, was running away from, from Shaul, he ran over into the Philistine, to Gaza, that district, and um, he hid out over there. What happened was, that, well, let's back up the story a little bit. Dovra Melch was talking to Hashem and he says, Hashem, I understand why you made everything. One thing I can't accept is madness. Man is crowned with wisdom, with inter intellect, intelligence. When a person goes mad and acts like a babbling fool, that's the biggest bizarre, that's the biggest shame for mankind. It's a blight on mankind that there's such a thing as madness. Hashem, why did you create madness? Why did you create madness? Perhaps the reason why he asked about madness is because he suffered from the fact that Shaul had temporary insanity. Shaul and Melch would uh, take target practice at Dovid whenever he saw him. He tried to spear him into the wall. He had to keep escaping him. And he had profound respect for Shaul. We know that Dovid had a tremendous, tremendous regard and admiration. Even after all this, he had profound respect for Shaul and Melch. Because Shaul and Melch was really a great person. Obviously, it bothered 
David, Hekel was such a great person, a tzaddik, a bottle of door, the, the person who was the greatest in cholesterol. And when he, when he becomes a manic depressant, and he becomes this schizophrenic, paranoid, whatever it is, it's a blight on mankind. It bothered him. Hashem, why do you do such a thing? He was escaping from Shaul at one point, and he ran into Gaza. And Shaul, we know, used to go around massacring Philistines by the bushel. I mean, it says that uh, the, the, the women would sing praises, and they'd say, Shaul killed the women by the... by killed Philistines by the hundreds, by the thousands rather, David's killing him by the ten thousands. So here he's hiding among the Philistines. This is their arch enemy. So they go over to the king of the Philistines and they say, hey, David is here. We finally have a chance to get him. David's here. So what did David do? He started acting like a Meshuggah. He went around drooling. He started writing graffiti on the walls. That's what it says. He wrote graffiti on the walls over there. It tells you a little bit about the people that write graffiti. But... But that's what that's what David Melch was doing. So when the king of 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 Pelishtim heard that, he said, "This guy is David Melch. Chasar Meshugayim money. I lack for Meshugayim. I have enough of my own Meshuganes. Get rid of him. We don't need him around here. Chase them away." David Melch learned from that. What does it mean that madness could also be employed for some sort of uh, purpose of saving your life? What what is the message of these two two uh, Gemaras? The message is. That Dovid Amalek was able to look at everything in life and anything in Hashem's creation, whether he understood it or not, and he was able to extract the good out of it. He was able to look for something and see he was the perennial optimist. He always saw the glass half full, never half empty. And these were lessons that were hammered home to David. It goes so far. The Gemara says, there's another Gemara Brachas, that says, a song from David when he was running away from Avshalom. Who was Avshalom? Avshalom was David's rebellious child who mutinied against him and attempted to overthrow him. And David had to go f- uh, take flight and um, Avshalom chased him. The Gemara says over there, a person that has a child that turns against him is more painful and causes more anguish than the wars of Gogumogog. Gogumogog is Chevlei Mashiach, right? The, the pains, the pangs of Mashiach. The worst thing is Gogumogog. Says the Gemara, what's worse than Gogumogog is having a child turn against you. What David Melch had. So the Gemara then says, why say Mizmor the David? A song of David? Say Kino the David. A lamentation of David. The Gemara says, because David was given the prophecy after his sin with Bathsheba that someone from your household is going to rise against you. And David was afraid what the circumstances can be. Who knows how bad it could be? When this happened, he says, Oh, Baruch Hashem, that it's only this. Ms. Morla David, I'll sing a song of praise. No matter how bad things were, David Amalek said, it could have been worse. Ms. Morla David, let me thank Hashem for only causing Hashem to rebel against me and to cause this kind of calamity. David Amalek was a perennial optimist. Whatever he saw, he extracted the good. The Gemara and Daf Yudenbrochus goes a step further. His son Shlomo Amalek said, Pio Poscho Bechochma. His mouth he opened in wisdom, Visoas Chesed Alishono. And the songs of Hashem's Chesed were on his lips. It's referring to David Amalek. He says, David Amalek at every stage in life sang a praise. So it goes through five stages in life. And it's just remarkable some of the things that it says. 
when he was in his mother's womb, he thanked Hashem for for making him. In other words, he was able to see the greatness of Hashem's actions in forming the human embryo. When he came out into the world and he looked up at the sun and the stars and the moon, he sang another praise for another world that he saw. The Gemara says, he looked at his mother's breasts and he sang another song of praise. Why? The Gemara says he thanked Hashem for placing a woman's breasts by her heart rather than where it is in animals in the lower regions. This way he doesn't have to look at the erva and he doesn't have to be in a dirty place. Rather, Hashem did a kindness to human beings that it placed the breast that suckled the human child next to the heart, the place of Bina, the place of, of emotion, of love and affection. However you want to define it in the modern context, uh, some define it with the fact that Bina Yisera, that a woman has this extra measure of intuition or of knowledge, and that's where the nourishment comes from. But in a more modern context, the human being is able to nurse and cradle and cuddle the child as it feeds it. Dovra Mel says, let me sing you a song of praise for placing the breasts over there rather than somewhere else. This way, when I get my nourishment, I also get emotional nourishment from my mother that she's able to coddle and cuddle me and cradle me. That's what Dovra Mel was able to do. At every stage of his life, the Gemara says, even death, he sang a song of praise about death. Dovra Mel was capable of thanking Hashem for every kindness, everything, whether it's his son's rebellion, for madness, I will thank Hashem at all times. Whatever Hashem does, I could extract good. Hashem says, that's why I show favoritism to Jews. How can I not show favoritism? A nation that's capable of doing that, isn't that a nation that I have to protect throughout goals? A nation that could thank me for, in the face of the greatest calamity of Betar, thank me for the fact that they could bury their dead. That's a nation that I'll protect through Golas. That's a nation that no Goyim will ever be able to, to, um, to vanquish. Rav Cook says, the lesson of Betar was the fact that the Jews don't decompose. You think they're dead, but there must be a spark of life there, otherwise they would have decomposed. The fact that the bodies aren't decomposing shows us that the soul is still there. You think that the Jews are downtrodden and down, and you've killed them and massacred them, they're still alive. Now they're going to be buried, they're going to be hidden away to come back in a future day in their glory. But the Jews are never down and out. They look down, but they're not down and out. They're hidden away, they're buried to a future day when they'll come back. Therefore, we place the bracha of Betar to show the entire panorama of Hashem's Hashgacha. The Meshachachma takes it a step further. He says, take a look, go through the stage-by-stage -stage process. Hashem provides us with miracles of Mon. He takes us through the desert. He provides us with Eretz Yisrael. He builds us the base of Mikdash. Shechina. We have Hashgacha. All of a sudden we come to the Bar Kochba revolution. When it seems that the earth is at its darkest and that we're lost, Hashem says, no, even over here there's Hashgacha. The Hashgacha may be different than what you expect. You think that your victory is going to be by the might of your arms? No, now you're in Golas. Victory is going to have to come that Hashem will cause kings to change their hearts. He'll cause a George Bush to, to take care of Iraq for you. Now that's what the Meshachachma says. That the lesson over there was that don't think that you're going to be victorious anymore necessarily by the might of your arms. It's going to be the kings that Hashem will change their hearts and therefore they will allow you certain things. Thank Hashem for the kindness of how He manipulates the king. That's the story of Purim. What's the whole Purim? Purim is the story of Golas. What's the story of Purim? How Hashem manipulated Achashverosh to do the Jews' bidding. In other words, in Golas we have a whole different 
formulation of how Hashem provides for us. Indirectly. No longer will it be with the Shekhinah directly with the Beis HaMikdash. It'll be an indirect method. It'll be that the kings will give you permission to do this. But it still shows us the Hashgacha. It shows us... And like this Yeah, yeah. Nice nister, hidden miracles. And also through indirect means, through kings rather than through yourself. But so therefore the lesson of Betar tells us number one that we have to realize that there's a hope for us still. That the same way that there was a Hashgocha from the very beginning when Hashem provided us with Mon, there was Hashgocha to the point of death and even beyond, that the Jews are never down and out. And therefore we talk about the Hashgocha of Hashem throughout the whole spiritual history of the Jewish people. And this is the lesson of Golos, that Hashem is still going to maintain us. Why will He maintain us? Because as we said, Hashem shows favoritism to the Jews precisely because we're able to bless Hashem for this. So there's a double meaning lesson in the blessing of Beitar. The fact, number one, it's a way of, of showing that Hashem will always provide for us and will always take care of us no matter what. But why will Hashem always take care of us? Why will He show us this favoritism? Because we bless Him for such things. Because we're willing to bench Hashem for these kind of things as well. That's why He reciprocates Mido Keneged Mido. We show Yisro Hashem Pono Ve'lecha. Rather, we show Nesiyas Ponen by benching even on the Kezayis. Even when we have only a little bit. When we're no longer satiated. When Hashem is no longer providing us with great bounty even for that little kezayis, we bless Hashem for. Therefore, Hashem shows us the hashgacha throughout Jewish history at all phases, even in Golos, even when Jewish people seemingly are down and out. So the Baruch of Hatov Ametiv teaches us a number of lessons. It first of all teaches us that we should learn to appreciate and to be grateful for everything that Hashem does for us. That we have to serve Hashem and thank Him for all that He has done for us. Be grateful even for the little things. It also teaches us the lesson of Dovr Melech, which is to always be an optimist. We should always look at the bright side of things. Just like Dovr Melech, Mizmor Dovid, to sing a song that even in our greatest calamities, we can extract something good from it and say, Baruch Hashem, the Tsar is here, it's over and done with, I have survived it. That's what Dovr Melech said. But Benching also teaches us something else. It teaches us that we are under Hashgachas Hashem and the whole Birkat HaMozen is a history of the Hashgachas Yisrael from the beginning of its roots by Klai Yisrael when they were in the Midbar and they were served the Mon all the way through the Chorben when they thought that their hope was lost and they thought after the war of Bar Kochba that there will no longer be salvation Hashem nevertheless shows them no Hashgachas still is taking care of you and Hashem will still find ways of taking care of you don't give up hope. There may be a new Hanhoga, there may be a new way that Hashem will save you, but nevertheless, don't give up hope. You are still under Hashgachas Hashem, and we shall still be saved. And therefore, Birkas Hamazan teaches us the entire Hashgachas Yisrael, the entire history of Klai Yisrael as they were saved throughout Golis. Furthermore, although all the other brachas of Birkas Hamazan talk about the building of our nation, and the miracles and the Hashgachas Hashem that we had, this Brach of Atov HaMetiv is really in a sense the guarantor of the Kiyum Homo, of the maintenance and of the salvation of the nation of Israel as they go through the darkness of Golos all alone. And it tells us the hope and the promise and the assurance 
that no nation will ever be victorious over us and no nation will ever be able to succeed in destroying us and completely obliterating us. And the same way that, that the bodies were preserved, Klal Yisrael will be preserved, we will be miraculously pre preserved throughout Golis. And that, of course, is the greatest miracle of all, the preservation of the Jewish people. And once we are aware of this, then all the other promises that our prophets have told us can be borne out. Once we see the miracle of the Jewish existence throughout Golis, then all of the other prophecies about our ultimate salvation can also be believed. Furthermore, the non-decay, the preservation of the Jewish body, shows us the eternity and the ultimate renewal of Klai Yisrael for a future day. Netzach Yisrael, the, the ultimate promise of the renewal of the Jewish people. With this we could also understand the question that someone asked, what does it mean where we say, I have been young, I am now old, and I have never seen a tzaddik that's forsaken and that his children should seek bread. Is that really the case, that tzaddikim will always have bread for their children and their children will never go hungry? We know that not to be the case. I believe it's Revolia Desla that says, the key is v'zaro mevakesh lochem. I have never seen a tzaddik whose children seek bread. It doesn't say whose children lack bread. It's possible that the children will lack bread, that they'll have a deficient amount of parnasa. But, but nevertheless, this seeking of bread, this unlimited and insatiable search for parnasa, this constant struggle to provide and to never be satisfied with what you have, that's something that you will not see in the children of tzaddikim. This endless chase for parnosa, this zarum avakesh lochem, that you won't see. They may not have bread, but they'll still be able to thank Hashem for whatever they do have, and they won't always seek more and more and feel this constant yearning and desire for this unreachable goal of bread. Zarum avakesh lochem, that you will all see by tzaddikim. At this point, let's briefly review all the different things that we've learned about Birkas Hamazan. In the first place, we know that Birkas Hamazan is Midoraisa, and it teaches us that we are just not like beasts, we thank Hashem for our food, and we appreciate what we have. But we mentioned a number of problems. First of all, why is it after, why is it after eating? Why is it Midoraisa? And, of course, the problem of why the bracha about Betar is there. We mentioned one approach of Beinu Bachai and the Chinuch that says that the Yisod of bracha is the increase of tova, the word bracha comes from brecha, a wellspring of, uh, of blessing that Hashem showers the world, like when we, we used to bring korbanos, the purpose of that is parnasa. In other words, Hashem told us, gave us the command to say berkas hamazan in order that we should be receptacles and to receive the blessing that Hashem wants to bestow upon us. Perhaps the reason why this is done after we eat is because we know that that when a person is satiated and his kavana to Hashem is such that he is thanking Hashem and blessing Him, he becomes more receptive to the bounty of Hashem and perhaps it has a greater effect to bench after we eat in order to promote more and more parnasa. That was one approach. The second approach is that brachas are really asking permission that one shouldn't steal from the world and therefore it's a sense of hakor satov, gratitude simply to show that everything comes from Hashem and to teach us this lesson of gratitude, which is, of course, one of the most important lessons 
that a Jew could possibly learn that's really, the, we once discussed it, as being one of the primary focuses of what the Torah teaches us, HaKor Satov. And to learn from this, that we should have appreciation and gratitude for everything, even for the Kezayis, even for the opportunity to bury the dead at Beitar, to look for the good in everything and to thank Hashem for whatever He gives us and to appreciate that whatever He does for us is good. Third lesson is that of the Meshachachmah that says the reason why we bench afterwards is because that's when a person is in danger of forgetting Hashem and rebelling against Him. Before we eat, a person avada has bitachon Hashem and will not rebel, he feels humble. But after you eat, you tend to become haughty and arrogant and you tend to forget. So Birkas Hamazan becomes a lesson that we shouldn't forget, that we shouldn't rebel against Hashem. That's why we bench afterwards in order to make sure that we don't fall into this pitfall of arrogance and forgetting HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Fourth, the lesson of the Mon, the lesson of the joining and the partnership between man's actions and the miraculousness of our Parnassah. The adult says, Nevertheless, we have to realize that it's like the mon, and that it's It's not by the sweat of man's brow, it's not his milchomer that does it, it's a combination of the two, and we have to bear in mind that it's Hashem that provides us, and it's like the mon, and therefore we have the lesson of Rabbi Shamshon Rafal Hirsch, that lechem shouldn't turn into a milchomer, people can have peace and brotherhood, because it all comes from Hashem, and Hashem is the one that provides us the parnasah. Therefore, we say Birkas Hamazan to recognize the fact that even our hard work and struggle and toil is really the equivalent of the man. We think we're earning it, but it's not our struggle that brings it for us. It's Hashem that provides it for us the way He provided the man, and therefore, there's no reason for a person to be over and losach mode. Five. The lesson that Rabbi Shamshan Rafal Hirsch tells us that after a person eats and his powers are reinvigorated, he has to realize that the purpose of everything that he's done of his eating and everything is to serve Hashem and to sanctify himself. Therefore, throughout Berkas Hamazan, we mention spiritual matters mainly because we want to show that the purpose of sustenance is to thank Hashem and to reinvigorate ourselves and to rededicate our lives for, for Avodas Hashem. And that we should not forget that in the struggle for Lechem, in the struggle for earning bread, don't forget Avodas Hashem. Let's redirect our powers for Hashem and for a spiritual quest. Six, the lesson that we mentioned from the Ein Yaakov. When a person is hungry, he tends to focus more on his needs rather than on the main purpose of tefillah. We mentioned that the purpose of tefillah is the Kesher. It's this communion between man and Hashem. Therefore, it's a relationship and a bonding between man and Hashem, which is better developed when man doesn't try to ask for and request his needs. When man is able to be in a more elevated state, when he no longer has his needs and he's satisfied, that's true tefillah. Because tefillah is ultimately the kesher and the relationship, the bonding that man and God are able, that man is able to develop with God, and this is more properly performed after one has eaten and he's able to deal in spiritual matters and his prayer is now of a more elevated state and therefore the bonding and the communion with Hashem is of greater, of greater depth. 7. Benching is a form of education of bitochen that teaches us the hashgoch of Hashem throughout the panorama of Jewish history that began with the desert where Hashem provided us with hashgoch through, through man all the way through the 
land of Israel where Hashem provided us with Hashgochas Hashem and He miraculously took care of us. He conquered the land for us miraculously. We built the base of Migdash and miracles happened there. And even after the Churban Beis HaMikdash, when we went into Golis, we were still under Hashgochas Hashem. Miracles still occurred, such as by Beitar. And this teaches us a lesson not to lose hope because there is an ultimate renewal for Klal Yisrael. And it's an education in the history of Klal Yisrael. The ultimate miracle is the survival of Klal Yisrael and therefore the promise and the assurance of its renewal are therefore more believable. That's what benching is. It's a history of Klal Yisrael. Eighth, and perhaps most basic, brachas have the power to enhance and to spiritualize the mundane, to elevate the physical. And as we mentioned earlier, it doesn't detract from pleasure, rather it intensifies the pleasure and it brings out the true simcha of the world. It transforms everything into Avodah Hashem, like the Rabbah Menhilchus Deus says, and like the Rabbah Menhilchus Yontav says, the true simcha is the enhancement of spirituality of the physical. And therefore, when a person is able to bring the spiritual dimension into the physical, he elevates himself, he elevates his bread and his parnasa, and everything becomes transformed into Avodah Hashem, and this therefore intensifies his pleasure, and everything becomes a totality of physical and spiritual united in the service of Hashem.